Well, again, if you're here and you're joining us, we're walking through the book of Hebrews for the next several weeks up until Christ the King Sunday, which is just near Thanksgiving. And today we're on Hebrews chapter 2. And like every chapter in Hebrews, there's eight sermons that we could do on this chapter. We're just going to do one, even though it pains me so much. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 13. And as we mentioned last week, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians, most of whom are coming out of a Jewish background, not all. And they're struggling. To be a Christian in this time meant to deal with marginalization and challenges and so many of the Hebrews, the, the people that this book is being written to, are asking harder questions about, is this real? Is God present? Why don't I just go back to my old life? Things were easier at that time. And so this book is meant as an encouragement. It's meant to ground them. And there's a lot that we can draw out about it into our own context, living in a pluralistic, mostly non-Christian culture that sometimes does marginalize those of deep faith. And one of the greatest challenges that this text speaks to, especially in this chapter, we can gather it from the context. One of the greatest challenges it speaks to is a lack of vision that the people here in Hebrews had for their life, or at least a blurred vision for what they had for what God was doing and the vision that they might have for their own lives in Jesus Christ. This vision that was sort of clouding in their lives and causing them to ask these questions. Now, Proverbs 29.18, in the King James Version, this is my favorite way to say it, says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. That without vision, as our lives, both as individuals and as a family and a body of Christ, sometimes are left to sort of just float off, leaving us to sort of figure out what we should do in our lives. In fact, other translations say, where there is no vision, the people throw off restraint. Just saying the same thing, without vision, Without something that's compelling and guiding, we're left to sort of float along and figure things out for ourselves. And that often leads to anxiety. It leads to conflict. And that's why the King James says it ultimately leads to perishing. Without vision, the people perish. Now, I have to admit, maybe it's because I'm from the D.C. area. Maybe it's my generation. But when I hear the word vision... And even mission or vision, I have to admit, sometimes I get a little cynical. And I see some smirks out there already. Because everybody and their brother and every organization has a vision that they want for your life. You know, there's a corporate vision for your life, which is buy as much of our stuff or subscribe to as much as our, of our services, and then you'll be happy. This is my vision for your life. Now, they sloganeer it in a different way. But really, their vision is that you will buy as much of their stuff as possible. In Cambodia, when I was there uh, for some time, there were a whole slew of nonprofits, and they were all doing great work. But in cynical self, it seemed like people were sort of one-upping each other on their vision for who had the best vision for their nonprofit. Now, they were all doing good things, but it seemed like there was a lot of sloganeering going on there, even churches, and coming up to vision for churches. Now, of course, we support the mission and the vision of the church, but sometimes there can be some sloganeering, some sort of promotion that goes on. But at its core, the truth and the reality is, is that we all need vision in our lives. We all need something that's guiding and compelling and driving us to live into a deeper and fuller life. This proverb is very true for us. Without vision, without vision, people will perish. 
And one of the challenges of the people in this book, and I think that we can also often experience in our own lives, is they were losing sight of the original vision that God gave them as they came into faith to be new people as individuals and to be shaped into new people as God's people. This vision was becoming clouded. For them, much of it was because of external circumstances. They were like Peter, where Jesus called Peter out of the boat to walk on the water, and he takes a couple steps out on the water, and then suddenly he sees the waves around him crashing, and he takes his sight off Jesus, and he starts to look at all the circumstances going on around his life, and he begins to sink because he takes his focus off of God. His vision is lost for who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling him to. Sometimes we lose vision because of internal anxieties, and so we wonder about, is this true what God calls me to? Because they don't see this fruit happening right away, and so we start to ask questions. Is this vision true? Is it real? And so these anxieties can cause us to lose vision. Sometimes it's just boredom. Sometimes it's just boredom. I've been doing this for a long time. It's hard. It's hard to retain this vision in a compelling way that guides my life. It's easy for the people in the book of Hebrews it's easy for us oftentimes to lose this kind of vision in our life. So what I'd like to do today, one of the eight sermons that we're going to look at, one, the one sermon of the eight that we're going to look at, is look at this passage through the lens of God giving a renewed vision to the people here in Hebrews. And really we can ask the same question, what does this vision mean for our own lives? And so as we trace through these verses here, starting in verse 5, we're going to see this vision that God gave us from the beginning, this vision that was lost and this vision that's been renewed in the person and the work in the life of Jesus Christ. So, everybody ready? Good, very good. Let's turn to verse 5, chapter 2. We're going to see how this writer talks to us about vision. So, immediately here in verse 5, and then into verse 6, the writer goes back to Psalm 8. And he reads this very famous psalm, which says this. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, yet you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, again, like we said last week, I think we're going to say this every week, the author's coming in hot. <laughs> there is no sort of warm-up language. He just says, by the way, let's remember how you were created that God made all of humanity a little bit lower than the angels in one sense, but, and yet, crowned humanity with glory and honor. That the almighty God that was present before all things were created, by whom and through whom all things are created, crowned us, crowned humanity with glory and honor because we bore his image. And then put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, if that's not a vision for an amazing life, I don't know what is. And really, this is the vision that we see with Adam and Eve, that God created them, and he put them in the garden, not just to look at the flowers and enjoy them, which he did, but he said, work the garden, name it, cultivate the goodness of all of creation, name the animals, bring out the goodness of what I've given you. I've created you not just to be but to be in relationship with me and also to care for and to cultivate all of creation. And part of that idea wasn't just gardening. It was gardening, but part of the idea wasn't just gardening. That's a good image. But it was a vision to cultivate and bring out the abundance of God's good creation in all aspects. 
even to the extent of seeking justice and peace and abundance and growth, because these were reflections of God's character that he implanted in us, and he wanted to see place throughout all of the world. This is the vision that God gave all of humanity from the beginning. In fact, one commentator took it this far. He said that God intended that even Adam and Eve would go on to split the atom in the future. That he created us with a purpose of bringing about the goodness of all of his creation and bringing his goodness out into the world. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. To have dominion, to bring out goodness, to take the goodness of the world and offer it up to God and to take God's goodness and offer it to the world. This is under God, by the way. This is not a dominion on par with God but, or above him, but it is under God. But it is with his great joy that he entrusted us with this opportunity and this vision to live in the world in this way. Now, that's why I think when Jesus references, there's this one unique case where two brothers come to Jesus and one brother goes to Jesus as he's walking and he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus' response, don't make me arbiter over you. Jesus saying, that's your job. I've crowned you with glory and honor. I've delegated authority to you because you bear my image. This is the original vision that God gave all of humanity. Now, as we look at the world, as we look around at the world today, we, we can see remnants of this vision present. We can see remnants of this spiritual DNA that's placed within us. I was going to play a song earlier. I didn't get the tech to work. But the other day, um, I have to admit, I was on YouTube again, and I was on a death scroll. And, and uh, this one was worth it because somehow, someway, it took me to uh, this school in Africa at an assembly singing before they went into the school. And they were harmonizing. These were just like middle schoolers. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And they were singing with such beauty and such soul. This is the image of God to create beauty and to reflect beauty back to him that he's placed within all of us. It was an amazing thing. And maybe I'll play it after the service for you. Just this week, we, uh, we, we heard that we see that what God has placed within us, we can't help but innovate and bring out the best of all of creation, or at least try to. I don't know if you know this. This might be scary news to you, but Tesla this week just tested their first neural network-based self-driving. Awesome, right? So what they did is they fed videos to a computer, and the computer watched the videos with camera without any code. It taught itself from watching videos how to drive a car. And then Elon Musk drove a car based on the neural network. Now, this is God's image that he's placed within us, this intelligence to create and to design. At our best, we are people that make order where there is chaos. I remember one time when I was flying to Cambodia, our flight, uh, missed, we missed our connection flight, and I was, we were with a little baby, and I was getting ready to go up to the desk and, and you know, fight and say, this is the way we do it. I want a hotel. I want new tickets. I want all these things because I didn't sleep very well. I wasn't at my most gracious self. And I was sort of like pumping myself up, ready to have this speech and this talk, and I walked off the jetway, and this nice Singaporean Airlines attendant said, we're sorry, sir, that your flight was delayed. Here are new tickets. Here's vouchers to a hotel. Here's vouchers to a nice restaurant, and here's a to take a tour of the city before I could even open my mouth. Now, this is the image of God that's present to create order where there's chaos. There's hundreds and hundreds of more examples. This, this DNA that God has placed within us is still present 
that God's made us to rule and to bring goodness into the world and to have dominion, to offer that goodness up to God. And anything we do with this in mind, for his glory, glorifies him. Selah. This is the vision that God has given us. Now, of course, there's a problem. There's a problem with this vision. And as we go on and read on here in verse 8, perhaps in one of the greatest understatements in the whole Bible, it says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. By him in the first sense, there's two senses to him. By him in the first sense, it means us. It means all of people that God made the world to be under us, and we're doing a good job in some ways. This image is within us, but of course, as we look around, we see lots of corruption and decay. We don't see justice and peace and prosperity as we watch the news. Unless, of course, we look at politics where sin hasn't touched that at all. I'm kidding, kidding. Looking back, of course, to Genesis 3, it all goes back to then. We decided to be our own masters, and we said to God, I throw off your bonds, and I want to be the leader and the master of my own destiny. You've made us to have dominion. Dominion we shall have. We became our own masters, and in irony of ironies, we can't even master ourselves. Can't even master our own emotions, our own soul, much less the world. So that's what we see in the world around us. This vision for the life that God has given us is at best distorted, where we make attempts to establish what God ordained for us with life and peace and fruitfulness without God. Then we step into what Psalm 2 says. He, he describes how we responded to God's vision giving. We said in Psalm 2, this is all of humanity. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. At its best, the world, of which we're a part, takes this grand vision that God has given us and distorts, us, distorts it. At its worst, the world embraces sin full-fledged, And the world responds by living in a state of constant existential anxiety. Really, that's what we see. That's what all the striving is. It's this constant existential anxiety, this grasping. So questions about personhood or our environment or our future or the nature of our bodies, they all stem from the same thing, a loss of vision. Our vision and our source of this vision have been removed and distorted as we threw off the bonds. They've been replaced with counterfeit visions, lowered expectations, and a selfish unsettled, anxious, seeking. Now, this is where the good news of Jesus comes in and the grace of Jesus, which is why we say, this is the good news. <laughs> Here in verse 9, it says, where we failed, Jesus came to rescue us. Now, remember, he's talking to folks who are doubting their faith. They're doubting why they're Christians. They're asking questions. What is this all about? And he takes them right back to the core. This is the initial vision. We lost it. And look what Jesus came to bring us. Verse 9. Well, we see him. You see how the hymn changes from all of humanity now to the one man who represents all of humanity. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, you all are smart. I think you see what the author does here. 
that we were created for this grand vision and this communion together with God. And when that didn't work out, God sent Jesus Christ, and he uses the same language about Jesus. He was made lower than the angels. That's his incarnation. He's now crowned with glory and honor. That's his resurrection and his, and his ascension. And so the, what the author's doing is he's rereading Psalm 8 through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what was true about us and became untrue is now true about Jesus. And because it's true about Jesus and we're united with him, it means that it will be true about us. See how that works? So one of the greatest joys of this kind of passages, and I'll refrain from saying this is my favorite passage because I say that every Sunday, but it's one of my favorite passages. Now, one of the greatest joys of these kind of passages is that they give us such a deeper, fuller, and richer vision for the lives that we can live as we walk together with God. Now, depending on your cultural frame and the elements that shaped your cultural frame, especially when it comes to the scriptures, there are a lot of knee-jerk reactions that we can have when I say the word, here's what the Bible says. There might be something that sort of pings in your heart and your mind about what might come next. So maybe you grew up in an environment where your view and your cultural frame and your frame for viewing the scriptures was a setting that was focused really heavily on what is right and not doing what is wrong, on behaving the right way, on ticking the right boxes. So the scriptures to you became a set of rules to follow, and, and they sort of represent this looming threat of this God that wants to punish you all the time and is always checking your spiritual condition. For other people, the scriptures might just be a, a sort of like a poetic philosophy that describes a good life and good values that we should hold. Others see it as, as a guide to keep us away from injustice, but that in some ways has sort of led us astray or is just an impression during a specific historical time. There are many other views, of course, of what the scriptures are, basic instructions before leaving earth. But this is the message of the whole Bible. It's right here, as we see in this passage, that God in his goodness and his grace created a good world, and he placed us in it, and he said, this is good because they will be my image bearers, and they will bring out the goodness of all the world and reflect it back to me for my own glory. And when we fail, Jesus sent, or God sent Jesus, who is our champion and our captain, our perfecter, our brother that leads us back into this purpose by first cleansing us from sins, bringing us into new life, and giving us a vision for the life that we can live together with him. This is the message of the whole scriptures that God has given us. And the good guidelines that God gives us to live are guidelines for our flourishing and ways that we can more specifically reflect his glory back to him. And even if we don't understand them all, they're there to keep us in line with his vision that he has for us and for the world. This is what the Bible drives towards. God's work in all things. Now, this does many things for us, and I'll just end here by focusing on or highlighting two things that this passage specifically does for us as we think about what does it mean to live in our life presently, to hold on to this vision for us. Now, for me, first thing, for me, growing up, in part, it was a tradition I grew up in, but probably in greater part, it was my young teenage caricature of the tradition I grew up on. And in the tradition I grew up in, the highest and best use of a person's life 
really the only thing of any real eternal value once you were a Christian besides living the right way was becoming a recruiter, becoming a recruiter for the kingdom. And so you were recruited into the kingdom by God and, and God used people to bring you into the kingdom. And then your job for the rest of your life, really the only thing that mattered, the only reason that you still had life in this world was to recruit others into faith. So that was the lens through which I viewed the entire kingdom of God. Now, what this passage does is that it expands this lens in such a rich and beautiful way. Now, notice it doesn't change the lens. It's still in the lens. It just expands the lens. So, first of all, this story that I'm getting sort of excited about is worth telling. (laughs) It's worth celebrating. It's worth singing about. It's worth responding to in prayer. It's worth giving our lives to. And it's definitely worth telling to other people, especially people who don't have this vision for their life. And so, yes, it is good to be a recruiter for God's kingdom. But (laughs) there's so much more here as well. This passage also means that all things are under God's rule. And when we follow Jesus' example for our lives and align our lives in the way that he gives us, when we bring out God's goodness in all the world and we offer that goodness back to God, that that glorifies him and that is of eternal and endless value in his sight. That that glorifies God as well. And so, if you're someone who's way smarter than me, and you can improve the Tesla neural network to make people's lives better, and you offer that to God in his glory because of the image of God he's placed within you, then that glorifies God. If you can offer a word of encouragement to someone, and you can give them hope, remind them of the vision that God has given all people, then that glorifies God. God. When you sing music in a school gathering with nobody watching except for 100 million people on YouTube, but when you sing, peop- when you sing music to God in the shower and you praise him, you read and you walk through the woods and you say, this is a beautiful creation, praise you God, that glorifies him and that brings his eternal glory to the fore. God's given us this vision to reflect all things back to his glory so we can live a rich life that is full together with him. He's given us this calling. This is what happens when we walk in the path of Jesus Christ. So that's one thing it means for us. We have this great vision, and God says, here's the world. Live into it. Bear my image into it and reflect its glory back to me for my own glory. It gives us a lot of things that we can do to glorify him. The second thing that this does, this passage does, and especially for the Hebrews here, but also for us, is that this prevents us from falling back into the comfort of the law or of any kind of law. Now, as I mentioned, many people in the audience of this book were considering going back to Judaism. So probably a lot of that had to do with the persecution they were experiencing, and, and they might have thought, well, you know, when, back when we were Jews, we had, you know, nobody was really bothering us, and we had this group of people that that we could be friends with, and, and we had this deep community. But beyond that, you can see echoes in this throughout the whole book of Hebrews and really throughout the whole New Testament. They also probably missed the comfort that came from a highly elucidated bullet point law, which let you know where you stood at every single point in your life, that it was something that you could measure yourself against and that would provide you with immediate feedback. So for many people, probably this great, but probably to them, loose, grand vision of 
live for the glory of God in whatever you do, probably felt a little unsettling. They wanted to know, well, how do I live exactly? What should I do? What should I not do? How can I measure myself against what God's standards are? And how can I measure myself against other people? How do I know I'm in or I'm out? How do I know all of that? It provided them some comfort. Helped them to feel grounded, probably. And the Hebrews author we're going to see throughout this whole book says, don't go back to that system. Jesus is the fulfillment of that whole system. Now today in this room... I don't think they're, actually, can I get a show of hands? How many people are con considering returning back to Judaism? Okay, I didn't think so. Today, we probably don't wrestle with that temptation to necessarily fall back into Mosaic law. But we all regularly probably wrestle with a temptation from time to time to slot more into a more rigid law-based culture. Whether it's a church that church culture that's really heavy on the law that always lets you know whether you're in or you're out or always lets you know you're standing or a strong political culture which I think is today's religion it's our popular religion of today's masses today's uh, political culture that has a strong code for who's in for who's out along with lots of tests for your political purity there's to some degree a comfort to be able to measure yourself against others and to know exactly where you stand now in Jesus Christ who's our brother, as it says later in this passage, who goes ahead of us to make us into new people, to draw us into this vision. He calls us out of that need. He calls us out of the need to have the law to give us the comfort because it's he who gives us the comfort, and he is always with us. We don't have to seek comfort in these codified measurements of our own life and self-righteousness. Instead, we can look to the giver of all of the law, the giver of all of life who is here and present together with us. This passage hits us with it time and time again. Verse 11, it says that he's of the same family. Verse 14, the same flesh and blood as we are. Verse 17, like us in every way. Verse 18, tempted like us in every way. The author is saying you don't need the law. We have here the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature that we read about last week. He is the vision, the vision giver, the vision renewer of this grand vision that God has given us from the beginning. And he's here with us. And he guides us into this new life together with him. So you don't need a set of codes to tell you. We have Jesus here together with us. So for us, as we think about this in our own lives, and as we leave here today, hopefully you have some time tomorrow to not work to reflect, to take some time, to maybe think and pray about what this fall season is going to be, more regular schedules, more time with others, time with maybe some more intense movement in your jobs. May the Lord give us this vision for all of our lives, this vision that he gave us from the beginning, this vision that is renewed for us and in us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's walk with Jesus, the champion, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the brother that guides us into the fullness of who God wants us to be. Let's be this vision together as CTK. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness that is always present to us in your scriptures. For how your spirit carries this truth, not just into our minds, but Lord, plants it in our hearts. So we do pray that this truth would bear fruit in our own hearts, 
that we would not just know about this vision that you've given us, Lord, but you would help us to lean into it and make this real in our own lives. And we thank you that even though in our own ways we try to burst off the bonds regularly of the good guidelines you've given us for life, we thank you that through your son you have not counted that against us, but that you offer us forgiveness and you draw us into newer and fuller life together with you. So be with us, Lord, we pray this season. Let us look to you and honor you in all things. And Lord, give us eyes to see this greater, fuller vision. Lord, not to take the counterfeit visions of the world as our path in life. We pray all of this in your great and holy name. Amen.